Good morning, church. Uh, we're continuing our, our sermon series called Counterculture, and we have promised you to take on the toughest issues facing our culture t- today. And so this morning we're going to be talking about the sanctity of human life. And usually in my preparation in, in weeks and days leading up to a sermon, I, I'm excited, I feel renewed. I feel energized, but leading up to this sermon, uh, I just felt a heavier and heavier weight on my spirit. And I have not, and shame on me, done enough research or been immersed enough in this scenario to adequately serve God the way that I should. And my hope this morning is that your heart's And your spirits are as called to action as mine has been as I have studied this material. So I want to pray and I want you to clear your mind and I want you to be open and honest with yourself and with God as we start to talk about what I really believe after doing research this for the past couple of weeks is probably the most important issue culturally facing us today. Let's pray. God, I'm just at a loss for words as to how to deal with the issue of the sanctity of human life in the United States. Abortion is just a way bigger problem than I've realized. And I ask God that today is the beginning of a call to action in the lives of our local church family here that are in attendance and in the lives of our church family that are at a distance, who are tuning in online. God, I just pray again that our hearts are open and receptive to your word. And please, God, allow us to be moved to the point of action this morning. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. I want to start out this morning talking to you about a young lady named Norma Nelson. She was born in Simsport, Louisiana. And the state and status of her family was less than optimal. Her dad, by age 13, had completely abandoned the family and pursued work. Up up to age 13, she would actually say he was kind of present in our family, but he wasn't present, not emotionally available to connect. Norma's mother was a violent alcoholic. And her older brother suffered from mental illness. So Norma would say of her early childhood that she really felt disconnected and isolated. By age 10, Norma was sent to a Catholic school near her own town. Shortly thereafter, she and another girl from the school left the school grounds, broke into a gas station, and robbed the cash register there, hitched a ride to Oklahoma City, paid for a hotel, and were hiding out when they were caught and turned into the authorities. Norma was shipped to Gainesville, Florida, where she stayed at the Gainesville, Florida School for Girls, eventually getting out at age 16, getting married, and having her first child. Her first husband was physically abusive, and he was an alcoholic. At age 18, she was impregnated again, found an attorney in Florida that helped facilitate her first adoption. In 1969, at age 21, Norma McCorvey, at this point, 
is impregnated again, her third child in just five years at age 21. She goes to a different attorney and says, I want to have an abortion. The attorney says that's not legal here in the state of Florida. It's 1969. There are only five states where abortion is legal. California, New York, Washington State, Hawaii, and Alaska. But if you drive to Texas, I know an attorney there that if he can't find a way, he could probably help you get this baby placed for adoption and that basically be cost-free for you. So she packs up and leaves by herself to Texas where she meets an attorney and tries to convince the medical community to give her an abortion as a result of what she claimed to be rape. That didn't work. But the attorney told her he knew a young lady that was looking for someone just like her. It was a colleague of his that he went to law school with named Linda Coffey. The man refers Norma McCorvey to Linda Coffey, and she connects Norma to her secretary, uh, to another colleague of hers, Sarah Weddington. And Weddington and Coffey were looking for a young lady who was young could not afford to drive to any of the five states in the U.S. that offered an abortion and would be willing to file suit against the state of Texas to get abortion rights amended in that state. Norma McCorvey agreed to the suit, and Coffey and Weddington filed a lawsuit against Henry Wade and changed Norma McCorvey's name to Jane Roe, and the landmark lawsuit Roe versus Wade was filed. Before then, abortions were legal only in five states after the state of abortion in the United States of America has completely transformed. So I'm going to give you now some statistics that are as accurate as we have access to today. I've verified each statistic I'm about to give you in two separate locations. I don't name the sources on the screen, but if you're interested, you can email me or contact us at the church. My reason for giving you the statistics is twofold. First, these statistics grieved my spirit and called me to action. And I hope that they have the same effect on you. And the second thing is, we have to be able to speak intelligently and intellectually in our culture about this issue. So who is it exactly that's getting abortions and how many abortions occur in the United States annually? 21% of all pregnancies, excluding miscarriages, end in abortion. That's one out of every five. It's a little bit more than one out of every five. In 2011, which are the most recent statistics that we've got access to today in the literature, there were 1.6 million abortions, 1.06 million abortions performed. Since Roe versus Wade was ruled in 73, there have been 53 million abortions in the United States of America. That is a number that I cannot imagine. So I did a quick search of the number of American deaths in American wars over the history of our country, and I picked the biggest casualty and loss numbers from each of those different wars. Here they are, top five. 
The Civil War, we lost 750,000 American lives. That's an estimate, but it's somewhere close. In World War I, we lost 116,000. World War II, 405,000. In the Korean War, 36,000. In the Vietnam War, 58,000. And in the Afghan and Iraq wars combined, close to 7,000 American lives lost. If you were to add those numbers all up, every American casualty in the biggest wars that the United States has ever engaged in, your total is 1.3 million American lives lost in American wars fought. That barely accounts for more than one year's worth of abortions done in the United States just one year. That pales in comparison to the 53 million legal abortions that have occurred since Roe versus Wade was ruled in the Supreme Court. So who is it that is getting an abortion? Let's look at the nature of uh, people who are getting abortions. Here you go. 66% of post-abortive women self-identifying as Christians say that they are in fact a Christian. 75% of women who, who have gotten an abortion report that a baby would interfere with work, school, or other responsibilities. It's just not convenient. 50% say they don't want to be a single mom or they're having problems with their husband or partner in their relationship. So if you look at those first three statistics, 66% of women have an abortion, say they're Christians, 75% say it's a matter of convenience, and 50% say it's because I don't want to be a single parent or I'm having trouble in my relationships. For me, if Christians would get involved, and that's what a big piece of this sermon is about, if we would get off of our tails and actually walk alongside single parents or people who are in a relationship that's disharmonious or volatile, or women who aren't spiritually mature yet, that are still kind of immersed in practices that aren't in line with Scripture, premarital sex or promiscuous sex, if we would come alongside these individuals and love them along the lines of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, we might resolve up to 66%, or if we could provide an adequate amount of support to families who are struggling, up to 75% of abortions with no political activism at all. So the opposition to that side of the argument says, well, Trent, wait a second. What about those situations where someone has been raped and the rape has led to a pregnancy? Or what about where someone's been uh, involved incestuously against their will and that's caused a pregnancy? All the literature indicates that those cases amount for less than one to one and a half percent of total abortions. Now, this is a very difficult area that I want to be very empathetic towards and sympathetic towards because I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ loves people where they are. God forbid anyone under the sound of my voice has ever been in that position. But let's say as a church we decided... We're going to allow abortion to occur in those circumstances. Let's say we just didn't even address the issue. That would mean that 99% of abortions still don't occur annually. 
But what the opposition wants to do is they take that small number and they blow it up as like it's 80 to 90 percent of cases, which is simply not accurate based on the evidence. So what do we need to do? What is life really about? When does it start and how does it develop? I'm going to give you my personal view on how life starts. I've quoted two sources here because they're significant enough for me to uh, write to you on, on the screen here. The first one is from a human development textbook written in 1974. This is my view. In that fraction of a second when the chromosomes form pairs... The gender of the new child will be determined. Hereditary characteristics received from each parent will be set. And new life will have begun. That's at the moment in time a sperm fertilizes an ovum. That forms a zygote. 46 pairs of chromosomes are matched up. And we have a unique genetic human being in the presence of the womb of the mother. I also quoted C. Christopher Hook, a medical doctor who's the director of the bioethic graduate program at Mayo Clinic. He says this, when fertilization is complete, a unique genetic human entity exists. So for me, really, life begins at conception. I talked to a fertility doctor in Houston that knows his stuff. I talked to a few medical doctors, as a matter of fact, in preparation for this sermon. What he actually said is, Trent, lots of families who are struggling with getting pregnant that come to me view life as though it starts at the point an egg or an ovum is fertilized by sperm. But he said what I think a lot of people don't understand is that of the ten eggs that are fertilized, we may only implant five or seven in the uterus of the mom-to-be which leaves a remainder of five or three that we have in storage in case we would want to attempt to repregnate the mom if if we didn't have success with the initial attempt. So if it's true that I really believe that the moment an egg is fertilized, life begins, what do we do with those other three to five embryos that are waiting to be implanted? I had no idea what to do. As he's talking to me about this, he says there's some really cool embryo adoption agencies that in the last five to ten years have developed that actually you can make a donation to. And they work with families who want to adopt, who want to be uh, artificially uh, pregnated. And you can support those families financially. And these agencies, one is called Snowflakes, will place an embryo in a family that's trying to get pregnant. So here's what I think happens for lots of us. I think lots of you would agree with me, Trent, I think life happens at the point of conception. But I don't think you or I up to this point have been educated enough to know what to do about the view that I actually hold. What we want to do is get politically active or active on social media or make big issues out of instances that really we don't have enough necessarily enough information to really do something about. But if it's true that you're like me and you believe life begins at conception, then we have to find a way to support either those families who are looking to adopt an embryo or those agencies who are trying to place embryos with families. And this is a beautiful thing that a result of our modern medicine has now 
confronted us, the church, that we have to start doing something about. If you're really pro-life and these really are your views, how really are you living these out day to day? And I think, quite frankly, the enemy has lulled us to sleep. Yes, this is my view. No, I'm not doing anything about it. I took uh, the time to talk to some experts and do a little research on human development. I want to I give you a little bit of that right now. I want to talk to you about a six-week-old baby. At six weeks old, the human baby would measure about an eighth of an inch. The brain and spinal cord would have formed the heart would be functioning and beating at about 80 beats per minute. Gender distinctions are already starting to form. I want you to look at this picture on the screen. This is about as close as I could get to a really clear picture of a six-week-old baby. This is actually eight-week-old, ten-week gestation. So it's a couple of weeks after the facts I just gave you. But when Roe versus Wade was ruled on in the United States Supreme Court in 1973, there was no way... Anybody had any idea that this is what a baby looked like in the womb of a mother at eight weeks old, ten weeks gestation? So let's skip ahead then to 14 weeks. What does that look like? A human baby at 14 weeks is growing 250,000 neurons every single minute. By this age, the baby can actually respond to touch by reflex. If a baby in, in, is being sonogrammed, they can kind of move and, and react. At this point, eyelids are fully formed. Feet and legs can kick. The baby can urinate and swallow. And enough coordination exists for the baby for it to be able to find its own thumb. 86% of abortions have happened at this time or earlier. This is a picture of what a baby looks around 14 to 16 Weeks. That's what a baby looks like, 14 to 16 weeks. Let's move ahead to 22 weeks. At this point, the baby's almost a foot long. The baby has a unique circadian rhythm, sleep schedule. Some of you moms know what this is like when, you're, when the baby you're carrying off of your schedule. All three of my children did this. I don't know based on experience, but this is what my wife tells me. So she'd lay down to go to bed, and about 30 seconds I'd be asleep, and about five to six minutes later, she's out of bed, walking around, can't sleep, because she's getting kicked and poked and prodded. The, the hair on the baby is visible. Gender distinctions at this point are also visible. Uh, calcium in the skeleton begins to harden. Blinking and frowning reflexes has, have developed, and finger and toe prints are also formed. Let me show you a picture here. This is a human being. And 53 million have been killed since 1974. That's 50 times the amount of lives lost in the five largest casualties we've experienced in the five largest wars in the history of our nation. That's that's unfathomable. What does Scripture teach us about the sanctity of human life? In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, the Bible says this, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Ladies and gentlemen, the human being is intrinsically valuable. You're valuable just because you've been created in the image of God. You are a miracle. 
The air that you breathe, the thoughts that you think, and the things that you can do day in and day out sets you higher above any other created thing in the universe. You can become self-aware. You can be in relationships. You can problem-solve. You can follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes you unique. That makes you have value. And every life that's made in the image of God is equally valuable. We can't discriminate based on race or social class or education or disability. And we certainly cannot discriminate based on age or level of development. In Psalm 100 and verse 3, the Bible says, Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. That fertilized embryo is a human being that is valuable enough for God to have sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to give His life for What greater love has any man ever shown than to lay his life down the way Jesus Christ did? We have no excuse for devaluing human life. If this is why we value life, what else does Scripture say about our understanding? Who creates life? Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, the Bible says this, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God is the creator of life. The miracle of life is a result of God's providence, sovereignty, and omnipotence, His power. He designed us, He created us, and even in the womb, He knows us. So if God creates life, then who is it God says can take a life? In Exodus chapter 21, the Bible says this, verses 22 through 25. If people are fighting and they hit a pregnant woman, this is the context you never, under, you never ever hear. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there's no serious injury. Serious injury here I interpret as either to the baby or to the mother. If there's no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you're to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now that last part, starting at the tail end of 23, end of 24 and 25, People who oppose Christianity often use as a way to condemn Christianity. But for me, those verses are an indication of the degree to which God values human life. I value human life so much that I, a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of grace, and a God of compassion, I value life so much that I would say... 
If you injure an unborn, then for you it should be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. For God, this is as serious of a matter as it could possibly be. And it's something that we in the church, I feel like the enemy has lulled us to sleep. Yes, 90% of us share the same views. But how many of us are doing anything about it? Why should we value life? What else does the Bible say? How should we view preborn babies? Psalm 127 and verse 3. The Bible says this. Children are a heritage from the Lord. An offspring and a reward for Him. Man, sometimes the complexities... And tragedies in life make it difficult to see God's beauty and majesty in each and every situation. But it's there because God is there. And in each and every human life, God also has placed value, intrinsic value. And children are truly a gift from God. So what do I want you to take home from this? First, I wanted you to have an understanding of the background of the young lady that was the, the plaintiff in the Roe versus Wade lawsuit. And I thought that was interesting because the third child that she intended to abort, actually she gave birth to that child and that child was placed for adoption. So for me, we've got two attorneys. One, Sarah Weddington, during her law school, actually went to Mexico and had an abortion performed. Then she came back and finished law school. You think she had an agenda? So she gets out of law school and is looking for somebody that's vulnerable, that needs help, that's an easy candidate to use for her own agenda. Now, today, Norma McCorvey is one of the biggest pro-life advocates in the pro-life advocate movement. But what's happened is the enemy is, is, is tearing away and destroying and deceiving People who are vulnerable. And I wanted you to see her vulnerability based on her life story. And I wanted you to see the nature of who it is that's getting abortions in the United States of America. Because for me, if Christians would get active and involved in their faith and start doing something spiritual as a result of what we say we believe, we could resolve most abortions. I think close to almost all abortions just as a result of our spirit-filled, Christ-centered life. I want to turn your mind to Second uh, Chronicles 7. This will hopefully be familiar to you. This is Second Chronicles 7.14. The Bible says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Dear God, 53 million children put to death since 1974. Our land needs forgiveness and healing. How do we get it? How do we get it based on God's word? We have to humble ourselves, pray God's face, and turn from our wicked ways. If that's how we get healing and we are not getting healing, then my logic says we are not humbling ourselves We are not seeking God's face. We are not praying. And we are not turning from our wicked ways as a church. 
And as a result of our lack of effort spiritually in our own personal lives, God's hand that is waiting to transform this nation is held back. I say I believe this. I say I'm pro-life. I say I'm anti abortion I don't care how you describe yourselves. How often this week have you yielded to wickedness? How often this week have you not prayed? How often have you not sought the face of God? How often have you not been humble? No wonder this nation isn't as transformed or as healed as we feel like it should be. Because God's waiting for you to take this serious. Not only is this issue only going to be resolved spiritually when the church of America is transformed from the inside out and we really get humble and we really pray and we really seek God's face and we really turn from our wickedness. But friends, you and I have to be concerned with abortion on both sides of the delivery room. We've got to be concerned with abortion on both sides of the delivery room. How many of you, under the sound of my voice, have surrounded a family and loved on them that have adopted a child? How many of you have looked at a family who has adopted a child and said, you are a hero? You're a hero. You're do, you are living out James 1.27. You, you are truly religious. You're pro-life and you are backing it up with the way you walk and talk. You have put your money where your mouth is. How many of us have signed up to become foster parents in the state of Louisiana? How many of us have volunteered time to encourage a family who's a foster family? How many of us have, have helped out in the children's wing of this church How many of you have helped out in the children's wing of this church in the last three months? And all those single moms who are desperate, who feel overwhelmed, who don't feel like they've got what it takes, know that because you're there helping out, they have somebody they can depend on to to attend a church service and for 30 to 45 minutes be fed from God. The only 30 to 45 minutes out of the 168 hours in a week that they actually feel like they get fed. How many of us are helping them? How many of us find in those women who are at risk for abortion because their marriages are, are damaged or volatile or disharmonious, how many of us are finding them and encouraging those families and say, man, I'm, I, I want you to come over. I just want to love me. You can do this. You're going to get there. Research says 50% of ladies who are impregnated when they're in that situation follow through with abortion. If I'm pro-life and if you are, then we better do something on this side of the delivery room. Another thing I want to say to you guys is that you really need to love one another if this is going to be resolved. You really need to love one another. As I was thinking about what this could mean for me, for Trent, and I felt so much shame that I haven't done more up to this point. Uh, God, forgive me. How many of us have, have partnered with abortion agencies or providers in New Orleans, where there's one, or Little Rock, or Tyler, Texas, closest? Those are the closest in our area. How many have partnered with them and said, hey, you know what, I'm a Christian, and I just want to communicate to the ladies that walk through your door that I love them. I just want to send you a 100 anonymous cards with gift cards in them and just tell these women that I love them. 
and that I'm here for them and that they don't and, and they don't even ever need to know my name, just that I love them. And I'm here. how many of us have taken that kind of a measure? How many of us have tried to build a relationship with a, an abortion provider, a medical doctor that's authorized and licensed to provide abortions? How many of us have tried to find that person and develop a relationship with them that could lead them into what I believe is a biblical understanding of the sanctity of life? How many of us have done that? But you know what lots of us have done? We've read names of guys who have, are abortion providers and we have hated them. That we felt like they're our enemies. And what does the Lord Jesus Christ tell you and me to do about our enemies? Love them. Pray for them. Even pagans can love people who love them and live according to their worldview. How much greater should that standard be applied to us? How many of us have volunteered to work in pregnancy crisis centers like Life's Healing Choices? We have a local agency. Director's name's Lindsay Sykes. She told a friend of mine, one of the hardest groups of people to get to volunteer are Christians. They're just so busy. And that just struck a chord in me. That God's people who are very much pro-life because God is the sovereign creator of life and human beings are intrinsically valuable. And at the moment a unique chromosome pairing happens, we've got a unique human being in existence. How many of us are unwilling to say, I'm pro-life, and as a result, I'm going to volunteer my time at a pregnancy crisis center, or I'm going to donate some money, or I'm going to connect with these ladies who are struggling, or I'm going to find a way to show the love of Christ into a community that really desperately needs to feel loved. Shame on us for holding ideas that our behavior doesn't live out. And it's this kind of stuff that keeps our nation held back. We wonder why we're in such moral disarray. It's because the enemy has lulled the church into holding views that we're not doing anything about. And the enemy just creeps into the sheepfold and we're all unaware and he is picking us off. One by one by one. Man, I could not be more passionate about this. But also in a room this size, I know that there are women in the sound, under the sound of my voice that have, that have had a, an abortion. And there are men who have had an abortion. And I just want to tell you that, that, that God, that there is 100% forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are immersed into Christ and you have repented... And the enemy tries to deceive you after the point you have repented and saying you're nothing, you're sick, you're a murderer. And you go to God again with that same issue. God, please forgive me. I, I can't believe what I've done. God tells you, babe, son, I love you. I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Because once God has forgiven, it is over. It's over as far as heaven is concerned. Praise God. And at this church, we do a much better job than most at believing that. But I want to affirm that to you. What I'm really upset about is Christians who say they're pro-life and they're doing nothing about it. If you have lived, if you have lived through an abortion, I want you to know that I love you. And, and there is forgiveness. And I have been deceived and led astray and committed sins. I would be 
ashamed to have mentioned. And so that really makes us no different. There's really no difference here. I need just as much forgiveness, in my case, probably more than most. And I want to tell you something. If you've never lived through that, we have got to forgive men and women who have been led astray and felt like that was their only option. Because you and I have been deceived just like they were deceived. And we have to be men and women who are conduits for God's forgiveness. Man, we've got to love people so much that it tastes to them like a little sliver of the kind of love that God has for them. That's what transformation is really going to be about, is when our love is, is to some extent a mimic or, or, or a replica of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to conclude, the, 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 the bottom is this, if we're going to resolve this issue in this country, it starts with your own personal spiritual transformation. And so if you're out there and you have never been spiritually transformed, you've never been immersed into Christ, I'm going to conclude, we're going to pray and give you that opportunity. If there is any wickedness or evil within you that would prevent or prohibit your prayers from reaching God's throne room and him forgiving us and healing our land after I pray while we sing we want to pray with you this is a loving family man we love everybody here and we don't want you to be alone no matter what it is you are dealing with so after I pray and we sing a song if you just need somebody to love on you please let us do that that's why we believe we're here let's pray Lord God, in the name of Jesus, please let your church be called to action. Let us get involved in this community, in this state, and in this nation. First, individually, spiritually, let us be transformed. Let us be humble. Let us seek your face. Let us pray and turn from our wicked ways. And then, God, your forgiveness and healing will be unleashed on our land. And God, let those of us who are mature Christians that say we are pro-life but are doing nothing in our day-to-day lives to demonstrate that reality, let us be called to action. Show us, guide us, and lead us to areas where we can be involved and love people and carry out the great commission in the spirit of the greatest command. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.